For those who don't know me, my name is Michael Davies, and uh, I want to tell you uh, about a holiday that I went uh, to Kyneton in Victoria, in central Victoria. But before we do that, uh, let's pray and ask God to be with us. Our Heavenly Father, we just want to say thank you to you for this morning. We want to thank you for our kids' ministry here in our church and to see these young um, men and women who are growing up and uh, making that move from uh, kids' men into youth ministry. Lord, we want to pray for them that you uh, would instill in them uh, just a relationship with yourself and that they uh, would believe in their hearts that Jesus rose from the dead for them. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help them to become the strong Christians that you want them to become as they grow into youth and that you would be with them always. And Lord, we want to pray that you would be with us always now as we open your word to Acts chapter 20. We thank you so much for your word and for the, uh, the truths that are contained within. And Lord, we want to pray that you would give us ears that are open to hear your word and that you would give us the confidence uh, to do what you uh, tell us to do from your word. And for myself, Lord, I ask that you would uh, just give me the confidence and boldness uh, to speak uh, about your word um, and the truth that is contained within. And so we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm actually not going to tell you about my holiday to Kyneton. I'm actually going to tell you about the trip home from Kyneton. You see, I'm the kind of person who always wants to maximise my holiday. Is anyone else like that? Anyone else likes to maximise their holidays? You know, so uh, I'll tell you about this one. So a few years ago, we went uh, on a family holiday to the USA, and we were gone for four weeks. It was like the holiday of a lifetime. Um, we only ever only have done it once, and, and it was this amazing once-in-a-lifetime holiday. But, you know, I packed in things in the morning, in the middle of the day, and in the afternoon, every day, for each of those four weeks, so much so that my family's like, please, can we have a rest day? I said, no, 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 we've got so much to see, we've got so much to do, we've got to make the most of our holidays. Anyone else like that, or is it just me? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, our holiday to Kyneton in Victoria was a bit like this. You know, after we finished in Kyneton, we could have just driven straight home, uh, which would be about a seven and a half hour drive, but instead, I um, convinced Susie that we should detour a little bit and make our drive home 13 hours and go via the Great Ocean Road. Uh, so uh, here we are, because I wanted to go see some things that I've never seen before. You know, there's parts of Australia, you know, you want to see everything you can. And so, first of all, you head south towards Geelong. And the first stop that you come across is Bells Beach at Torquay, uh, Australia's most famous surf beach. And uh, we didn't have time for me to stop and have a surf, but uh, isn't it just a beautiful spot? Can't you just imagine spending some time there? Um, uh, just so beautiful. But now I can say I've been there. Uh, and so then after you uh, leave Torquay, you just turn right and you follow the coast a bit further and you go along the Great Ocean Road. And of course, if you know the Great Ocean Road, it's spectacular scenery. And then you come to an iconic photo spot. Of course, that iconic photo spot is the Twelve Apostles. And uh, isn't that beautiful? Like, you know, you, just, you would drive so far just to see that and to enjoy uh, that view. It's one of our most iconic tourist destinations. Now, if you're, if you're smart, what you do at this point is you turn inland and you drive towards the main Adelaide-Melbourne road and you drive straight back. Uh, that's what a smart person would do. But no, um, what I did is that I wanted to drive along the Coorong. 
You see, I'd never driven along the Coorong, that, that part of coastline between the Great Ocean Road and Adelaide. Uh, I wanted to, to drive that. And uh, I just want to give you a tip that driving along the Coorong is one of the most boring strips of road that you can ever drive on. Uh, and if you contrast it to this view of the Great Ocean Road and the 12, 12 Apostles, it's quite amazing how much the scenery changes. But so I, I made a bit of a mistake there, and uh, I'm, so I'm already in the doghouse for doing that. Uh, but the other thing I didn't factor in was uh, how much petrol I had left in the car. Uh, you see, this was on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, the sun was getting low in the sky. The petrol gauge was nearing empty. And uh, one of my major flaws uh, in planning this little excursion was that I didn't have a map with me. And uh, I didn't have GPS either. I just figured, you know, I'm pretty good at navigation. I can work this out. We can just get it done. Won't be a problem at all. Uh, and the fuel gauge continued to go down. And, uh, you know, the car started spluttering. You know, that point in time when you're so much out of petrol, that's all that's left is the sludge in the fuel tank. We're kind of at that stage. And so I turned off a few times trying to find a petrol station. And I didn't have much luck finding one that was open. I think I remember coming to at least two towns where the, the local um, rusty ge uh, geezer, you know, you get one of those pump-style ones, and the, and the petrol station had already closed. And I'm thinking, where am I going to find petrol? Well, then we came along to this T-junction. And it looked a little bit like this. And uh, I knew that Adelaide was straight ahead. But there were no signposts to say what was on the right and what was on the left. I knew that if I went this way, it was going to take me back towards the coast. And if I went this way, it was going to take me inland. But I had no idea where I was, and I no had no idea which way to go. I was at a crossroad, and I was lost. And can I put it to you, church, that Maybe us here at City Reach Oakton are also at a crossroads as well. If you've been coming to our church for a little while, you would know that we are in a time of leadership transition. So which way are we going to go as a church? Well, where we pick up our text today in Acts chapter 20 is where the church at Ephesus also was at a crossroads. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to open to, to Acts chapter 20 and you can follow along there. I need to give you a little bit of context uh, about what's been going on. Uh, you see, the Apostle Paul had just lived in Ephesus for the past three years, and he'd been building up the church, and now he was on his way back to Jerusalem. And, you know, and this was the Apostle Paul. You imagine if the Apostle Paul was here in our church. He'd be teaching this and leading that, and, and if he decided to get up and leave, that would leave a huge gap that needed to be filled. Well, as he finished up his time at Ephesus, he decided to visit some churches on the way. And so he goes down by Macedonia and Greece, and he comes to this city called Troas. Now, here's a famous story of this guy who falls asleep listening to Paul's preaching. The Apostle Paul preached until midnight, and there's this guy who's listening to him speak, and they're in the upper room. And uh, he's sitting in the, in the window bay. And what happens? He falls asleep. Uh, because the, the Apostle Paul is preaching all the way to midnight. He falls out the window, he hits the ground, he dies, and Paul goes downstairs and he raises him back to life. Uh, what a wonderful miracle. But I just need to reassure you that I'm not going to keep preaching until midnight, uh, because uh, I don't want any of you to die. And, uh, and secondly, because if you do die, I don't think I've got any chance of bringing you back to life. I'm sure we have some doctors and nurses here who might be able to help, but that won't be me. So anyway... Um, after this happened, uh, Paul's uh, companions uh, get on the boat at Troas and they sail down to the next town, which is Asos. But Paul doesn't go with them. 
What does Paul do? He decides to walk instead. Now you think, oh yeah, he's going to go from um, Troas to Asos, Paul's going to walk, the rest are catching a boat, not a big deal. But if you then go to the back of your Bibles and look at the maps that you've got in your Bible, you'll see that the distance between Troas and Asos is 32 kilometers. Why, Paul? Why would you walk 32 kilometers on foot, in sandals, by yourself? Why would you do that, Paul? You see, the Apostle Paul had arranged for the leaders of the Ephesian church to meet him there. I think he decided to walk because he wanted time to think. He knew that once he left that region, he was never going to see the church at Ephesus ever again. Paul wanted to give them a parting message. Now, if you think about it, what could Paul possibly have left to say? He lived amongst them for three years. What could there possibly be that he needed to tell them? You know, the last words that someone tells you when they leave for good are worth listening to. I have this book that I've read uh, called The Last Words of Saints and Sinners, and that details the last words of a wide variety of people just before they die. I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one is about a guy called Voltaire. Don't know whether you've heard about Voltaire. He was a scientist, and he dedicated his life to two things. The first thing he dedicated himself was to discover new scientific uh, discoveries. And the second thing he dedicated his life to was to destroy Christianity. He, um, he was an avowed atheist. In fact, he hated Christians so much that what he did was that he bought a, uh, a printing press and he put this printing press in the basement of his house and he would print up like tracts explaining to people why they shouldn't become a Christian, why people should reject Christianity and only accept um, you know, rational scientific thought. So he dedicated his life to try to destroy Christianity. And you know what? There's a really funny story. Um, you know, God has got a sense of humor. Uh, so what happened to Voltaire after he died? Well, when Voltaire died, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and the printing press. And they started to print Bibles on his printing press. So the very printing press that he used to print tracts against Christianity, God used to print Bibles so that more people would come to know him. Isn't that wonderful? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, what did Voltaire say on his deathbed? Here's this avowed atheist dedicated to science. And as you can see on the screen, he says this, I'm abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months' life. Then I shall go to hell, and you will go with me. Oh, Christ, oh, Jesus Christ. So even though he was an avowed atheist, on his deathbed, he knew the truth. He still called out to God. Let's contrast that with another person, this one being John Wesley, one of the leaders of one of the biggest revivals in the United Kingdom. Imagine the scene. Here is this beloved pastor, and he's there on his deathbed. He's surrounded by his friends and his family. He's got a doctor and nurse there with him, and he's just about to pass into eternity. He's been a faithful man of God. And what does he say? He says, best of all is God is with us. And the nurse said to him, Pastor John, save your strength. Rest up. You haven't got much more time left. John Wesley 
sits up in bed and he says, best of all, God is with us. That was his final words. And that is the message he wanted to leave for his friends and family. Well, what about the Apostle Paul? I know from personal experience that if you wanted to walk or run 32 kilometers, it's going to take you a while. What was on the Apostle Paul's mind? What were his parting words to the Ephesian church? Well, if you look, if we come into Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul starts by looking back at his ministry at Ephesus. In Acts 20, verse 19, he says, You know how I lived among you. Paul wasn't a hypocrite. He knew that the Ephesians knew exactly who he was and what he was like. He had lived amongst them for three years. And as we can see in the text, Paul served the Lord with all humility, with tears, and he faced many trials due to the plots of the Jews. He didn't have an easy time, and it was a real challenging time. He faced opposition, and the Ephesians saw how Paul handled every situation. They came to know that the Apostle Paul was a leader who had integrity, who served the Lord and not man, and he was someone who was worth listening to. His last words to the Ephesians church was worth listening to. Well, let's look at uh, verse 20, uh, which will be up on the screen for you. Uh, Paul says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul was all about helping the Ephesians mature in their faith. He told them about Jesus in large congregations and in small groups. He didn't hold back and just tell them that God loves them. He told them everything that is profitable. He went through all of Scripture with them. He went through the whole discipleship course with them. He gave them the whole enchilada. He didn't leave anything out. He taught them everything that they needed to know to become mature followers of Jesus. He was committed to helping them to go deeper in their faith. Now look down at verse 21. It says there that, uh, it says, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though the Apostle Paul was a discipler, he was also an evangelist. He spoke to everyone in Ephesus about Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. He spoke with slaves and slave owners, men and women, the rich, the poor, the insignificant and the powerful. Paul didn't fear, fear rejection or being ostracized for, or for spending time with people that society said he shouldn't. He shared the gospel with everyone in Ephesus and the surrounding region, telling them that they needed to repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. And if you want to know how effective Paul was as an evangelist, you can turn back to Acts chapter 19. It's quite, quite interesting. So Paul went and shared the gospel with everyone and actually transformed the city of Ephesus. So much so that the silversmiths who made idols that people would buy and put in their lounge room at home, they went out of business. No one wanted to buy idols anymore because so much of Ephesus became Christians. Isn't that amazing? And it caused a riot and they chased Paul out of the city. He was an effective evangelist. You know, last week, Pastor Timon gave us his last words as senior pastor. His last message pointed out the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And he reminded us that discipleship needs to go deeper and wider. Do you see the similarity between what says here in Acts chapter 20 and what Pastor Timon spoke on in Matthew 28 last week? What's really quite amazing is that I um, started putting together this message um, a number of weeks ago, and 
uh, I didn't talk to Pastor Timon about it, and he didn't tell me that he was going to preach on Matthew 28. But it's amazing how in two weeks we have the same message. Our witness as a church needs to go deeper and it needs to go wider. We need to become deeper disciples of Jesus, but we also need to tell more people about Jesus. And just like the Apostle Paul, we have got to observe Timon's life, not over three years, but over 12 years. And we know what kind of a leader he has been amongst us as well. He has our, our senior pastor who's just left, Pastor Timon, has shed many tears with us during his time with us, and he experienced many trials, but God has blessed the ministry here at City Reach Oakton through him over that time. Make no doubt, make no doubt about it, uh, God did the work, but he did it through a man. Last week at the farewell, I uh, shared um, a big list of things that, uh, that the Lord did in our church during this time, and I'm not going to go over that list again, but I'm just going to summarize them by saying we saw new churches planted, we saw a large number of future leaders mentored, and our church became more evangelistic, uh, and we had more opportunities to grow in spiritual maturity. And just like the Ephesians recounted Paul's ministry amongst them, I think it's important for us as a church to remember and to be thankful for what the Lord has done through Pastor Timon. So you might be asking the question, why is it important to be thankful? Well, I want to put it to you this way. Thankfulness is the soil in which faith grows. Instead of thinking to ourselves about what we want or what we deserve or how hard done by we are, we should say, thank you, God, for this new day. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings you give us, a roof over our head and food to eat and clothes to wear, a job to go to, an opportunity to study, and even breath in these lungs and the freedom that we have to come into this place and to worship the Lord together because everything we have is from God. But what else does the Bible tell us about thankfulness? I've got three verses for you. The first one is Hebrews chapter 13. It says, we should continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And the third one, Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some significant words in those three verses. Let me point them out to you. Uh, and maybe you don't want me to because there's no wriggle room when we do. It says there, we should be thankful continually in all circumstances, always, for everything. Thankfulness is actually a foundational quality of the, of the Christian life. I once heard it put this way, that gratitude is the attitude that sets the altitude for living. Well, what's the alternative to being thankful? It's actually grumbling. And uh, we could, if we had more time, we could go back and look at Numbers chapter 14 to see how the children of Israel grumbled against God. You've got to remember that the children of Israel were just led out of Egypt by Moses and they were going to the promised land and yet the children of Israel grumbled about God. So how did the Lord think about that? Well, he told them that they weren't going to enter the promised land. They were all going to live and die in the wilderness. And it would be the next generation, their children, who would enter the promised land instead. Why? Simply because they grumbled. So, I'll, I want to challenge you. Let's reject, crumble, let's reject grumbling and complaining 
And instead, let's make the choice to be thankful for what God has done. All right, let's go back to Acts chapter 20. Down in verse 31, uh, Paul gives this imperative. He says, be alert. What is it that you want us to be alert about, Paul? Well, Paul turns his attention from recounting about what happened in Ephesus to asking them to be looking ahead, to pay careful attention in the future. What do you want us to pay attention to, Paul? In verse 28, it says, to yourselves and to the flock. You see, he was actually speaking to the Ephesian elders, but I want to put it to you that that message is just the same for us as well. We all have a responsibility to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, and we also all have the responsibility as part of a church community to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, and to help each other mature in Christ. Now look down at verse 29 and 30, and it'll be up on the screen as well. Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. With the Apostle Paul leaving the church at Ephesus, that church was in a time of leadership transition. And in a time of transition, there will be attacks from inside the church and from outside the church. Well, what do attacks from inside the church look like? If, we have, if we're told to be alert, we need to know what they are. Well, it says there that in verse 30, it says, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Right? So we have to watch out for people speaking twisted things. But I think because of our knowledge of God's word, we can expand upon that a little bit as well. We can look at 2 Timothy 2.14, which says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. I.e., we can have division in the church, we can have um, attacks from inside the church based on theology. Now, if you know me, you know that um, theology is important to me, it's important that we get it right, but as a church, we can't spend our time arguing about it all the time. We have a doctrinal statement, we have elders to guard that, uh, and so, but churches can get, all, can get caught up all the time arguing about theology. What's one of the other ways that, that can cause conflict um, or, or attacks inside the church, and that's conflict and division? We have uh, an example in Philippians chapter 4 about these two ladies. We have Euodia and Syntyche. Now, I, I think at Kidsmen today, I didn't hear about any young Euodias or Syntyches. I didn't hear any, but... Um, uh, back then, clearly, they were names. And, uh, and these two ladies, even though they were serving significantly in the church and were no doubt a blessing to the church, they had conflict with one another. And that's a terrible thing. And in fact, they made it into Scripture for the wrong reason. They were being told, cut it out. Stop with the conflict. Um, we need to remind ourselves what it says in Romans 12, 18. It says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. So how do we guard against attacks from inside the church? Matthew chapter 7 warns us to beware of false teachers and prophets who come along in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And that passage tells us you will recognize them by their fruits. So that's attacks inside the church. Uh, how about attacks from outside the church? Well, this one's a little bit easier. Our Western world is becoming more hostile and antagonistic to the gospel, thinking that it doesn't need God, and it can reject his son, Jesus. So what do attacks from outside the church look like? Well, I've got three for you. First one's changing morality. You know, what was considered deviant behavior less than a generation ago is now celebrated by society. 
Second one is increasing prosperity. Now, I love the fact that you know, nowadays we have more money in our bank accounts, but the reality is, is that with an increase in prosperity, it builds the narrative that we don't need God to provide our needs. And the third one is a rejection of absolutes and the adoption of subjectivity. What I believe and I do is only up to me. No one can tell me any different. I get to decide what is right and wrong and how I'm going to live my life. It's my truth. Comparing that with the truth. When we replace the firm foundation of God's word with the world's values, it will result in the destruction of the church. So where does all this come from? The attacks inside the church and outside the church? Of course, it's from our adversary, the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So again, the command that we're given in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, be alert. The devil, often by stealth, would like nothing better to cause strife in our church and distract us from what God has called us to do to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So, recapping. Uh, So now that we've remembered all of God's blessings to us and we're on the lookout uh, for the things that might attack us or distract us from God's mission, what should our response be? Our response should be living for Jesus. So let's circle back to Acts uh, 20, verse 22. We read that that Paul is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He's compelled to go, even though he knows that things will be difficult for him ahead. Why, Paul? Why are you going to go if you know that terrible things are ahead of you? You see, it wasn't just a hunch that things were going to happen. Uh, Scripture, as as Pastor Jeremy read out for us, actually tells us that the Holy Spirit has told him over and over again in every city, and that's presumably to prepare him for what was to come, that he will be imprisoned and that afflictions await him. You can imagine Paul's travelling companions um, getting alongside of him and going, let's be sensible, Paul. Come on. You've been this amazing church planter and evangelist, and you're writing scripture. You are, Paul, you are just too important to the mission. We need to protect you. We need to guard you from being imprisoned or having afflictions. Let's just talk about this a little bit, okay? You're an older man. You're not as young as you once were. And you have done more in your life than anyone else could do in five lifetimes. Why not consider retirement? You can get yourself a nice little shack on the Aegean Sea where you can continue to write and take it easy. You can hand over your ministry to Timothy instead. He's a young guy, he's got lots of energy and enthusiasm, and he has proven himself faithful. Relax, Paul. Live it up a little. You've earned it, and you've already done your bit. But the Apostle Paul already realises that this kind of thinking was coming. And he says this in verse 24. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, this is an interesting verse. You see the phrase there, finish my course? This isn't like a course that you take at school or university. It's not like one of those online courses where you just skip through to the end and you try to guess what the answers are, multiple choice, and hit submit. That's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. When he says, finish my course, he's talking about a racetrack. Paul is running a ministry marathon, and he's not finished yet. Now, 
he, he has used this analogy before. In 2 Timothy 4, 7 to 8, we read this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul wants to stand on the podium and receive the prize and hear the words, good and faithful servant. There's no way that the Apostle Paul was going to retire. He was going to keep on serving God, and I can imagine Paul saying this, so long as God gives me breath, I'm going to live for him. I'm going to serve him with everything I have, because if, even if I give God everything I have, my whole life, it still won't be enough for what he has done for me. You know, it's easy for us as a church to think to ourselves that we've earned the right to take it easy too. We can think to ourselves, we've got this big, successful Adelaide church, at least by Adelaide standards. Can't we just rest up a bit and make ourselves a little more comfortable and enjoy the blessings that God has given us? After all, we've planted two churches in the past decade. We've sent out a bunch of people. And here in our church, we've seen all this fruit over the same time period. Can't we just take it easy for a little bit now? The trap that we can experience is that we can fall into thinking that the blessings that we have experienced are as a result of our efforts and not because of God's favour toward us. We can be lulled into believing that we have the power to turn on or off the tap of blessing in our church when in reality it only happens by God's grace. He decides who. He decides when. Well, let's talk about Reach 10 for a second. Uh, our Reach 10 vision isn't Pastor Timon's vision. It's a vision that God gave our elders. And we don't simply throw it away because Pastor Timon has left. Now, in time, the Lord may lead our elders uh, to adopt a new vision. But until he does, we should keep on doing the one that he's given us already. Again, it's the sense of being thankful for what God has done. So let's, let's play a little thought experiment. How many, how many Bible-believing... I'll get my words right here. How many Bible-believing, meet-with-God-every-day, trusting-God-in-daily-prayer Christians do you think there are here in Adelaide? I reckon maybe 7,000. But let's just pretend for... Let's just look at that and go, Michael, you're way off. 7,000 has got to be more than that. Let's double it. Let's say that my estimate is off by 100%. Let's just say there are 14,000 14, genuine Christ followers here in Adelaide. I don't think there are, but let's just, let's just assume there are for the sake of argument. How many people are there living in Adelaide? There's 1.4 million. Now, I'm not going to ask anyone to calculate percentages in their head on a Sunday morning, but 14,000 out of 1.4 million is 1%. 1% of Adelaide's population are genuine Christians. To put that another way, it means that 99% of all people living in Adelaide aren't Christians and they're going to spend eternity in hell. And just to be clear, if, if, if you're sitting here today and, and you think that you're part of the 99%, you know, we would love to sit down with you and talk to you and explain to you how Jesus died on the cross for us and, uh, and how you can have a relationship with him. You know, we would love to do that as a church. But, you know, that's a, that's a big percentage, 99%. You know, our Reach 10 vision is for us to plant 10 churches here in Adelaide. Reach 10. So far, we're up to three churches, 
And we thank the Lord so much for bringing us Pastor Andy and Pastor Lawson. And if you've gone down to visit those churches, you know that the Lord is working in amazing ways there. And they are reaching different parts of Adelaide. But you know, if we are going to make a dent in the city of Adelaide, we don't need a Reach 10 vision. We need a Reach 100 vision. And I'm kind of only half joking. Because if we were to plant 100 churches here in Adelaide, that would bring up the number of genuine worshippers to maybe 35,000, 40,000. And that would still be less than 3% of Adelaide. And so you might be wondering, why am I so fired up about this? Well, in 2 Peter 3.9, we actually learn God's heart on the matter. It tells us there that the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But secondly, God deserves the worship of his creation in this life and the one to come. All of creation, from inanimate objects to plants to animals to us, will worship Jesus because he is worthy of the very best praise that we can bring. And that's the desire of our hearts, isn't it? When we think of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished on the cross, we want, to, we want him to receive the worship that is due him. And so we have a wonderful opportunity, church, before us. Adelaide has a huge need, but our God has a huge heart and infinite resources. The only question that remains is, will we make ourselves available to be used by the Lord? He will build his church, but will City Reach Oakton and the other City Reach family of churches, will they be part of what God is doing in the city of Adelaide or not? Now, some of you might be asking the question, but why should we do it by planting churches? Can't we evangelise in other ways? And the way that I'd answer that question is, yes, we should. We should be praying for and telling our friends and family about Jesus. We should hold more evangelistic services here at Oakton. We should run more Alpha courses. We should send out more missionaries to the four corners of the earth to reach unreached people groups. But we should also be planting churches. Why? Well, I have this quote here from Tim Keller who wrote this article called Why Church Planting? And it's a little bit dense, but, but please listen to me as I read it out. The vigorous, continual planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for one, the numerical growth of the body of Christ in any city, and two, the continual corporate renewal and revival of the existing churches in a city. Nothing else, not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting. This is an eyebrow-raising statement. But to those who have done any study at all, it is not even controversial. I'm going to boil that down to two points for you, and they're on the next slide. Planting new churches is the best way to maximize the number of people saved. And two, churches that plant churches are the most spiritually healthy. And I want both of those things, and I hope that you want them too. More people coming to know Jesus and the renewal of the faith of those who attend this church. Well, the astute amongst you might be asking the question, what actually happened to the church at Ephesus? What happened to it after Paul left? That church was at the crossroads. Did it thrive? Did it survive? Did it die? 
What did Paul's final words accomplish? The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians probably five to ten years after the events we read about in Acts chapter 20. And by all accounts, the church was doing really well. They listened to Paul's final words. Let's fast forward another 30 years and we read about the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And it still seems to be doing okay. They lost their first love, but they're still being a witness in their community. The unfortunate thing is, though, that church history tells us that the church at Ephesus doesn't ultimately survive. You see, churches need to, re- to, to, sorry, churches need to continually recommit to God's mission to see God's hand remain upon them. City Reach Oakton, we are at the crossroads, a moment of leadership transition. It's a time when the devil tries to get in and disrupt, but I'm so thankful to the Lord for bringing us Pastor Graham. And I'm excited for our future as a church under the leadership of our elders. But we are at a crossroad nonetheless. Will we have hearts of thankfulness for what the Lord has done? Will we guard ourselves and our church from attack? Will we press on and remain faithful like the Ephesian church did? Now is not the time for us to take our foot off the accelerator. Instead, let's draw close to the Lord, claim his promises, and plead with him to continue to work through our church. Our best days can be ahead of us if we remain on mission for him. So this morning, I am calling you to make a series of choices, a call to action. The three points from the message today. We should be looking back, remembering and thanking God for what he has done, thanking him for working so unmistakably in our church in the past. We should be looking ahead, being on the alert, making sure we don't get sidetracked from the mission that God has called us to. And thirdly, we need to make the choice to be living for Jesus, not coasting along, but going hard in following the Lord. Your best days as a Christian are ahead of you if you humble yourself and seek the Lord with all your heart. Doesn't matter how old you are, if you seek the Lord, your best days can be ahead of you. And likewise, our best days as a church can be ahead of us if we are about the Lord's business. To finish, I want to close with just one more verse, and that's uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14. And the promise there is that if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we just want to say thank you for your word. We want to say thank you for the examples that it gives us. We want to thank you, Lord, for the church at Ephesus and the way that they heeded Paul's final words. I want to pray likewise, Lord, for us as City Reach Oakton, that you will help us uh, to be about your word, that we would remember all the blessings you have given us, that you will help us to look ahead to be on the alert so that we don't get sidetracked and that we would both individually and corporately as a church make the decision to live for Jesus so that our best days might be ahead of us. We thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, you give us the courage to follow it and I thank you for all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.